0: All right. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Redeemed Humanity. This is a podcast where we've been exploring primarily um, men and women's roles in the church. That's the main goal is to work through the Bible and see, okay, what does it really say about men and women and their roles in the church? Should they be distinguished? Should they be specific? You know, those sorts of questions are what we're seeking out to ask. And what we've discovered so far as we've gone through genesis and then the other sections in the bible that have continued this story is that it is exactly that a story that begins with humanity being equal between the sexes that they are created to live in harmony with one another but they sin in genesis 3 and that sin results in a curse between the sexes that There is no longer that equality, no longer intimate relations between them as they're intended to have. But as the story plays through, as we walked through the last time, we saw that that curse between the sexes is redeemed by Jesus in his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection. Everything that he does is breaking this curse down. And we saw that that is consistent Throughout scripture. But of course, there are a few passages that would seem to really disagree with that. So, how do we make sense of that? Well, that's what we're going to get to in the next episode. But this episode, I'm going to give us something. Really practical, that can be something that you take with you and that you carry on. What we're going to be doing is going through quickly what the exegetical method that I'm going to be using is. So, exegesis, that is a word that just means like studying scripture. So, when I say the exegetical method, that's a fancy way of just saying the way that I'm going to be studying this scripture. And it's, it's really needed to have a method when you're doing this kind of study. Because like you saw before in the section where I define gender and sexes, it can be really difficult to come to common definitions about even just like basic words that we use today. There's tons of common ground that we had to find that takes hard work surrounding just basic words in our own society. So how much work will we need to do if we're actually trying to talk about texts that were written in ancient times or in the first century so there's this like severe danger in assuming the definition behind just our neighbor's use of the word gender and there's then a greater danger to assuming the definition of words or phrases or ideas used by a first century Roman Jew that'd be what Paul is so what are we supposed to do Biblical studies have come up with several systems to make sure that we don't have these kinds of misunderstandings. And those systems, as I said before, are called exegesis. The goal of exegesis is to understand what the author actually intended their words to mean at the time when they were being first spoken or written down. This work is vital because we don't live in ancient Jewish or first century Roman context. We're not going to have just these shared understandings of their ideas or words or phrases, so we've got to do this work to uncover what they meant at the time. last year, my church sent me to the Charles Simeon Trust to learn a method that they teach to exegete a passage as you're preparing to preach expositionally. I'll explain what that means in a second. But first, as I entered that conference, I'll admit I was really skeptical. I left, though, convinced That their method is so helpful and it's really a needed structure for properly exposing what the scriptures are actually saying rather than imposing our own thoughts into them. That's why it's called expositional preaching. It's exposing what's in the text. And the method that they use gives some helpful guide rails that keep us on the track of exposing the truth of the text rather than making missteps that would bring in our own ideas. This is not the only way to study the Bible, but it's particularly helpful when preaching. One of the quotes from the conference that really just left me struck was when one of the pastors said, when you're done preaching, you should be able to confidently say, thus saith the Lord. Man, that's a heavy thing to be able to say, and it would be a really hard thing to do unless you're trying to expose what the Lord has already said in the scriptures. So it takes a lot of work, but it also is almost easier in some ways because we don't have to guess what the Bible is saying because it's going to help interpret itself for us. All we've gotta do is expose what's already there. With that in mind, I'm gonna give a quick overview of this expositional approach to exegesis, or in other words, I'm going to give a quick overview of how I'll be studying these passages and just letting them speak for themselves. And the reason I'm doing that is because it's the way that I'm going to study these passages and expose what they mean uh, to you guys. This section is super helpful for this project because we're going to come to see that many of the false interpretations from these passages, they arise due to an insufficient or not entirely accurate method of study. So laying out this method, it's going to give us language to identify where those misinterpretations are happening. And this has been just so helpful for me because... Paul's letters, they have so many imperatives and you and statements. And we easily can just move straight from what he is saying there to what he's trying to say to me personally right now because he's using these statements like, you should do this. So we're like, oh, I should do this. But such a move, it's the result of insufficient exegetical work. And it's not actually how most pastors approach any other passage of scripture, so we shouldn't be content approaching these specific ones in that way either. The first thing to be aware of when we study a text is our frameworks. What that means is we should allow the text to create our way of thinking, rather than letting ourselves be the way of thinking that we are bringing to the text. What I mean in this case is, regardless of where you stand on the egalitarian versus complementarian spectrum, we should always set that conviction to the side, as you know, as best as possible, when we're studying the word, and then just allow. The Bible to speak to us without being filtered through our presuppositions. And the best way to start this process is to just pray for the Spirit to do that work in you. So I'd encourage you even just pause right now, spend some time in prayer, um, and then come back to the podcast. After we ask the Spirit to speak His Word to us, we can approach the text at just its own surface level. What is it saying? That's the first question we need to ask. Are there words that aren't clear, that maybe we need to do a little digging on? This is the simple first step. Just read and comprehend the words. And now, it it does seem simple, but it's really necessary often we will have a preference regarding a uh, Bible translation when we read, and this is the moment where it usually helps to seek additional translations or go consult some other resource like a lexicon. I personally usually just go to biblehub.com and I take advantage of Strong's lexicon on words that could be not super straightforward just in you know, our own English language. Which, yeah, I mean, it's not a very straightforward language, so we need help when we're translating. After we feel like we've got a comprehension of just the literal words and what they mean, then we're ready to begin our actual exegetical process. So our first goal, after we've just figured out what it means to read the words, is to ask the question, what did these words mean to their original audience? This is not actually as easy as it might sound. You know, as we've already concluded, words only mean what they mean in a given cultural context. Those meanings, they're they're changing rapidly, and especially when a translation process is involved. So when significant time has passed or a cultural boundary has been crossed, we've got to do some extra work. For a better understanding of this, I'd love to point you to a Bible Project podcast episode that I just found so helpful. It's episode 250. Go listen to that if you want to know why this step is so important. But in order to understand a text's original meaning... The Charles Simeon Trust determines two vital factors. The first is context and the second is structure. So let me unpack what I mean in each one really quick. context they break up into several categories the literary context which basically just answers the question what's the rest of this passage saying and how does that affect the specific section that i'm studying if you're studying chapter two it would be helpful for you to actually go back to chapter 1 and then read on to chapter 3 and 4 and whatever comes next and understand how your specific section is going to work in the larger whole. So the second context we need to identify after literary context is historical context, which answers the question, what was going on historically at the time that would influence this passage? And there are actually two sides of this question. First is, what's the biblical history provided somewhere else in scripture? And the second is, is there any extra biblical or like cultural context that would be helpful to understand the audience's situation? For this project, we are super blessed to have the book of Acts for at least some of the biblically provided historical context in which Paul is writing his letters. So we've got to include the story of Acts in his letters to really understand what he's saying. And then we've got to do more due diligence to understand if there are applicable aspects of first century Judeo-Roman culture. And particularly, he's writing to specific churches in specific towns like the town of Ephesus or the town of Philippi. So maybe there are specific cultural things about those towns that are going to be assumed when Paul's writing because his audience lives there. So we've got to figure out what those things are. The next context that we need to answer is Biblical context. And that answers the question, where does our passage seem to be pulling from or directly quoting or being pulled from elsewhere or quoted from elsewhere in Scripture? Because the Bible, like I said before, it interprets itself, it refers back to itself, it quotes itself a bunch. And so, when this happens, comparing and contrasting those related sections, it's going to give us a huge and helpful comprehension of how they influence and interpret each other. I know that sounds like a lot, but that's how the Bible is meant to be read. It's supposed to be read and reread and read and reread so that when you begin to get the whole thing in your heart and in your mind and in your soul, You start to see how it all works together and interprets itself so that you're not making up things that just sound like your own thoughts in biblical language. For this project, I've already walked through several places where that's already happening, like Genesis 1 through 3. In order to rightly understand what Paul is saying in his letters, he quotes back to Genesis 1 through 3 all the time. So we really have to know. That section in Genesis to know what Paul is actually talking about. After we've gone through and answered those context questions, we carry those conclusions when we're moving on to identify the passage's structure. Now, knowing the structure of a passage, it's really vital because it reveals the way that the author is directing his audience to their aim or to their intent, their main argument. To say it differently, we as modern readers, we have to track along with the author's logic their every single step to get to their conclusion and observe the way that they got there. And then when we've done this, we're able to actually synthesize the argument the way the author intended for us to hear it. This isn't always easy because the Bible, it contains a lot of genres of literature, and each genre has its own style of constructing an argument. And each author has a unique take on their genre that they're using. So we can't just assume that a passage is going to walk logically from like point A to B, and then B to C, and then C to D, and then finally conclude with their main point, which is E. That's not always going to be the way it is. But after we've actually identified the structure of a passage, then we can walk through their argument in the way that they intended it to be seen. And if we're doing this while we're living in the context that we've reconstructed for the passage, then we should start to get a correct interpretation of what the message was that the author actually intended for their original audience. It's a lot of work, I know. But it's what we have to do. And luckily, we've got pastors in church history and theologians that have done so much of this work. So if you're like, whoa, how am I even supposed to begin with that? Go online, (laughs) buy some books, buy some commentaries. People have done this work for you. But it's also helpful to do it yourself, to make sure that you're not just reading someone else's interpretation. so that's the work of exegesis however a proper interpretation of scripture doesn't stop there once we've identified the author's intended message for the audience of their day we then have to identify the theology of the passage and here's the question we ask when we're trying to identify what the theology is 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 there something about god or jesus or the holy spirit that's being taught or assumed, or is it laying the foundation in this section? It's going to take work, but it's necessary for us to identify the theology of the passage. Otherwise, we'll end up with a message that basically just says, hey, this is what the Bible says, so do it. And the beauty of Scripture is that God is revealing himself in every single word and every single passage. So if we skip this step, we actually make the Bible all about us rather than all about God. But the beauty of Christian theology is that it is tangibly known and most tangibly in the gospel. So we have to allow the understanding of what's being assumed or taught about God to move us toward Jesus. Because it's our conviction as Christians that what Jesus said is true when he was speaking in John 5. He said, you pour over the scriptures because you presume that by them you possess eternal life. But these are the very words that testify about me because the true God has become incarnate in Jesus, all of theology finds its physical and full manifestation in him in the scriptures. Another way of saying this is, how does each passage that we're preaching or studying point to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because it's, again, our conviction that all scripture points to, revolves around, and ultimately finds all of its gravity in Jesus. So we can and must always ask of a passage, how is this illuminated by the gospel? Or in what way do we see Jesus glorified here? Or my favorite way of asking this question is, all right, picture this. What if you were running alongside the Ethiopian eunuch's chariot in Acts 8, and he was reading the passage that you're studying How could the Spirit use you to proclaim the truth about Jesus as it's revealed in your passage? Asking and correctly answering this question of the passage that you're studying, it's vital because it ensures that your interpretation is going to be centered around its actual source of weight and meaning, Jesus. To be clear, though, I don't mean that every passage of Scripture is an allegory to Jesus. What I do mean, though, is that every passage of Scripture contains some element of the good news about the triune God of love and He is always found in His Word. So if you're interpreting Scripture and you can't seem to find any good news about Jesus within it, either our imagination of the Gospels and how it points to the triune God, our imagination about that is too small, or we're actually just erring in our interpretation of the text because the spirit is always going to lead us to the sun in a right interpretation once and only once we have discerned the author's aim through the context and structure and interpreted the biblical text can we actually apply the passage homiletically to our lives. Homiletically, that just means we're applying the implications of the gospel to ourselves. That's called doing homiletics. And this process, it's actually rather simple, but it's where the beauty of scripture is an unending fountain of love and wisdom because it bubbles out for endless generations. It never runs out. The author's aim, once we've directed it toward and Through the theology that culminates in the gospel of Jesus, it can always be interpreted in a way that applies to us. The important thing in this interpretive step is just that we retain the heart of the author's original aim as we move forward into our application. What I mean is... If at the end of a particular passage, it seems that Paul's point in writing is to encourage his audience to live freely out of the abundant grace that they have in Jesus, that should be the main message that we receive or that we are preaching as well. But the application of that message is going to be different. So if Paul is preaching that his audience should live out of the abundant grace of Jesus and the way that he applies that for them is that, they shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols? Well, in our context, that just wouldn't make a ton of sense for us, right? We don't have idol meat sacrifices very often around here. But it might make sense for us to apply that by saying, hey, to live in the free, abundant grace of Jesus, I'm not going to pick up extra shifts at work so that I can spend that time with my neighbors in the evenings with them. As long as the application is congruent with Paul's aim to live freely out of the abundant grace of Jesus and point your neighbors to the gospel in the way that you do, it's gonna be a correct interpretation and application for us, right? So that's why all of this is so important. And it's the structure that I'm going to be using as we study these complementary and proof texts in the coming section. For each passage, We're going to first understand the actual words. Second, figure out what the author's main aim is using context and structure. Third, we're going to allow the gospel to be the culmination point of the passage. And then from that gospel, understand the implications for our lives to apply in our context. So that's what we're going to do. In every passage, we're going to follow those steps of exegetical process, and it's going to safeguard us from any dangerous or false teachings. In all that, however, I want to acknowledge that this structure, it's not the thing that's pointing us to Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So, we have to rely on Him and walk humbly before our God as we ask Him to do awesome work in our life. That He would lead us to love Him more and more through these scriptures. So, I think now would just be an awesome time to stop and to spend some time in prayer. That's what I'm gonna do. I hope that's what you respond to this with as well. Next week, we're going to actually get into those six complimentary proof texts. And I, I know that that is kind of why many of you are still listening. So thanks for being patient and working through the process up to this point. Um, I hope that you'll find that it's worth it once we actually get into next episode. Thanks for being with me and hanging tough this time. Um, I love you. We'll see you next time.